The other kids, they think I'm weird. I don't want to be. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. <laughs> the boys. The boys. After the blood comes the boys. Welcome to Now Playing's Harry Retrospective Series. Sin never dies. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King Movie Series. The children are wandering through the wilderness of sin these days, Mrs. Nell. Hosted by Arnie. They're all gonna laugh at you! Stuart. They're all gonna laugh at you! And Jacob. They're all gonna laugh at you! Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series and keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Stephen King-based movies. You'll never forget it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Why didn't you tell me, Mom? Listener discretion is advised. Are you ready to dance? Today we're talking about Carrie, starring Angela Bettis, Patricia Clarkson, Rena Sofer, Candice McClure, and David Keith, directed by David Carson. I'm Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing, who always cops to it when he's being a bitch. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob. And you guys want a donut? They're glazed. That glaze, man, it's like crap. You guys ever do heroin? <laughs> I'm going to abstain from that because I am not being interrogated by a police officer right now. I don't know why there is a police officer right now, but yeah, we're back on familiar ground with new faces and a new slant on things. Carrie 2002, the noir crime movie. Isn't this what we do here at Now Playing? We review remakes. That's how we got started. The remake of Friday the 13th, the remake of Star Trek, the remake of Halloween. So here we are with the remake of Carrie. I honestly forgot there was a remake of Carrie before the upcoming next week's remake of Carrie. <laughs> you know what? I wonder how many people wish we had just skipped this and gotten right to it. I don't think that there is any love for Carrie 2002. I don't think there's much awareness of Carrie 2002. It did stream on Netflix for a while, so maybe if you stumbled upon it for free, you took a look, but it was a ratings disaster. It was not turned into a TV series, as this clearly was proposing at the end of this. I think that we've really reached into the depths, much like we did during Marvel and some of those TV movies. I just think that we found something obscure and unloved. Yeah, you know, last week when we talked about the Rage Carrie 2. I remember the trailers for that. I never saw it, but this Carrie TV film, I have no memory. I never remember seeing a commercial for this thing, hearing about it, reading an article. Totally off the radar for me. And I watched it when it was broadcast on TV the first time. <laughs> and the last time. <laughs> yeah, I had no doubt about that. It should be said, in the 1990s, a Stephen King miniseries or TV movie was an event. It was appointment television. Somewhere in the turn of the millennium, I feel like he got relegated to cable. I don't know when it happened. I guess that will be our journey to discover. As we go through King, we'll see how it goes from being must-see TV to look-away TV. But Carrie 2002 is really at the tail end and at the lower end of a wide series of TV movies. Honestly... When you say event programming, that basically narrows down to it and the stand. I mean, if you look at some of the other ones that they tried to make events, the Langoliers, the remake of The Shining that we'll be covering all too soon. I honestly think it's that remake of The Shining when 
King's ego became so large saying, we're going to tell The Shining my way. Better than Kubrick. Can't wait to see it. <laughs> yeah. They decided that the King brand on TV started to go downhill. The remake of Salem's Lot made for TNT. But 2002 actually had something other than Carrie that got me excited for Carrie, and that was the premiere of the Dead Zone TV series on USA. And being a huge fan of the Dead Zone, and Marjorie had never seen it, we got out the original Christopher Walken film, and I was just loving that movie, and watched the TV series with Anthony Michael Hall, and was really intrigued with the way they took that novel, which was kind of episodic, we'll get to it eventually, and created a weekly TV series that lasted for six years. And so when I heard Carrie was coming on as a movie of the week, I was excited. I wanted to see if they could do the same thing to Carrie that they did to the Dead Zone. And so, yeah, I was sitting there for the entire three-hour running time. I had very little memory of it. I literally only remembered the last scene, and that was it. I remember the movie as well, but only as you telling it to me and that last scene in a phone call. I didn't see the movie. I don't know that I would have been aware of the movie, but because you saw it and you were irate, uh, you may have forgotten how you felt, but you were pretty jazzed about this movie and not in a positive way after you saw it. It was a lot of talking you down from the ledge, as I recall, <laughs> in the aftermath of Carrie 2002. I'll be wondering if you have the similar reaction. I remember very well your initial one. I'll say right off the bat that when I watched it the original time, all I could think about was the De Palma film that this stands in the shadow of. I will be making a concerted effort tonight on this recording to not do that and to try to judge David Carson's TV film as its own beast. What if there was never a De Palma carry and this was the carry? I'm going to try. I think that's uh, wise for all of us. I am striking De Palma. I know. I don't think there's a person on the planet that thinks that this one is going to top what we've seen before. Is it going to work on its own terms? How are they going to tweak what was done before? It's been 26 years, long enough for people not to forget Carrie, but at least to have fuzzier memories of it. How are they going to tweak the material and change our expectations and give us a new experience that's in some way positive. That's my barometer. No, I'm not expecting a classic here. I'm expecting a revising that is clever. And, and you know, I think there's reason to hope for that. When I look at the people involved in making this, you mentioned David Carson. He was instrumental in bringing Star Trek, the next generation, to television. The screenplay is by Brian Fuller, who I think did an excellent job of adapting Hannibal Lecter to NBC television this past year. And I, I loved Pushing Daisies. Every episode of Pushing Daisies was TV gold, and he was completely behind that. Yeah, Dead Like Me, Star Trek Voyager, he has a long track record of making quality television. Well, maybe not Voyager. I, I thought that one was okay, but <laughs> I watched about a year of that. But you know what? I think that they're in pretty good hands. There's no reason to think that these people can't find something new and find an end to making Carrie go from a classic movie that no one can top 
to carry a weekly episodic television series, which clearly was the intent. I couldn't find any proof of this, but watching this movie, they were set up for a series, right? This is a pilot. Not only is this a TV movie, it's a TV pilot. Not in so much. It's a TV pilot the way some of those Marvel movies were TV pilots. None of the cast was signed to do a TV series. Okay. There was no hard concept ever shared with members of the cast for the TV series. When asked about it, Candace McClure, who plays Sue Snell, said she'd heard something about them being like a Thelma and Louise on the road, and we're going to talk about all of that. <laughs> but Thelma and Louise. It wasn't firmed up. That said, I'm sure for, based on the way this is that, yes, they were really hoping that something would be clinged on to that could be revived in either a series of TV movies or a weekly series. It didn't happen, but we will talk about all of that. All right. Well, then, by necessity, because this is tradition, I will ask you for the plot. Although, make it short. I think we already know this one. Actually, just in case a listener didn't listen to the Carrie 1976 plot summary, I've cut and pasted it here. <laughs> I've tweaked a couple of words, but I'm going to be bluntly honest. It was copy, paste, reread, tweak three things. <laughs> okay. So, second verse, same as the first. Carrie White is a high school introvert. Socially awkward to the extreme with stringy hair, she's often been the target of practical jokes and ridicule. Things are no better in Carrie's home life where she's berated and abused by her mother Margaret, a religious fanatic who believes almost everything is sinful and has never taught her daughter about human biology and sexuality. This leaves Carrie in an unenviable position. When she has her first period while showering after gym class, her antagonistic classmates are not sympathetic, pelting Carrie with tampons while chanting, period. But this trauma awakens within Carrie her power. She is telekinetic. When enraged, she can move objects with her mind, a power that convinces Margaret that her daughter is possessed by a demon. New insert! When Carrie was a young girl, an abuse by her mother first awoke her power, and their house was besieged by a rain of burning stones. But from that incident until the shower, Carrie's powers had been dormant. Now those powers have returned, and, return to old script, Carrie practices using them in her room, and finally exhibits them to show her mother the balance of power has changed, and Margaret can no longer abuse and berate Carrie. In the school, the balance of power is changing as well, as the girls who teased the bleeding naked girl are given detention. Head bitch Chris refuses to attend detention for her torment of Carrie, and so she's banned from attending prom. But from the shower incident, Carrie's classmate Sue Snell has a falling out with Queen Bitch Chris. Sue finds Carrie interesting, wanting Carrie to have one happy event and thinking of Chris's reaction if Carrie gets to go to prom while Chris doesn't. Sue asks her boyfriend Tommy to take Carrie to prom. Tommy agrees and after some coercion, Carrie succumbs to Tommy's pestering for the date. Furious, Chris and her boyfriend Billy and a few other students conspire to make prom a night Carrie will never forget by stuffing the ballot box so Carrie is voted prom queen. Then, when she is crowned, Chris dumps a bucket of pig's blood on Carrie. Embarrassed for the last time, Carrie goes on a rampage, using her mental powers to kill almost all of her fellow students, with few students escaping. Carrie returns home for comfort from her mother, only for her mother to try to drown the girl in the bathtub. Carrie responds by using her mental powers to crush Margaret's heart, and Carrie drowns as her mother dies, but Sue breaks into Carrie's house and uses CPR to resurrect Carrie. 
Weeks pass as a police detective investigates the prom massacre, thinking Sue was in on the prank that humiliated Carrie, but Sue is eventually exonerated and the detective never finds out that Carrie White is in fact still alive and being protected by Sue. So Sue and Carrie go on the run from police, driving off to Florida together as credits roll. <laughs> I'm going to have to take notes on this. I've got to do the Psycho remake soon. And yeah, I, I look forward to hearing that plot next week. I think you're going to be <laughs> saying it exactly the same way next week. Here we have uh, three movies out of this franchise that are nearly identical. I really do think I'm going to be cutting and pasting yet again. I'm <laughs> hoping that they do something a little bit different with the new theatrical version. I can't really tell, though, based on the early promotional materials. Yeah, there's no reason to think that they're not going to give us the same story again. And that's, you know, I feel for these people. Not only do they have to tell us a story that was already very well told and, in my estimation, very familiar to a wide range of horror movie audiences, if not the general public, but they've got to do it on television, which means censorship, a lesser budget. I feel for anybody in 2002 when TV is still not become... It's not entered its golden era quite yet. This would be seen as a second-rate undertaking under those circumstances. Yeah, furthermore, that Carrie film, I don't know, it's a great film, De Palma's, but it's a very simple story. I think we all pointed that. It's a very simple revenge story. And so how are you going to come here and bring something new to it? There's not like a big twist, like when they remade Planet of the Apes, you know, they try to spin that twist ending. What can you do here? That's what I'm curious. What are they going to do here to really make this worth sitting down and treating as something different than what I saw back in the 70s or watched whenever I put it on the DVD player. And my thinking is they don't have to do anything radically different. They have a good book to base it on. De Palma's retelling was fairly faithful. It left out a few things. They added some of those in here. But truthfully, I'm thinking for both this TV movie and next week's new theatrical remake, what Carrie needs isn't so much a new spin, so much as a modernization. There are audiences, and I'm oftentimes that audience when we review older movies here on Now Playing, that just don't like to go back and watch old films. They don't like the style. They don't like the pacing. And so I think that if you tell the same story, you don't have to add new twists and turns. You can just Try to tell it in the early 21st century, hopefully a little better than the Rage Carry 2 did in the 90s. So we'll see Carrie get, what, bullied on Facebook or something? Not in 2002. We're still, what, well, next three week. years? Yeah, ne yeah, next week. But here now, yeah, they're kind of caught. I mean, their frame of reference is, as someone literally calls out a Freddie Prinze Jr. movie, she's all that, right? That's what they're thinking about as a template here, that they're trying to do one of those 90s teen high school movies. This is... Heathers or Clueless or Cruel Intentions. That's the template here. Freddie Prince Jr. and that mad dash of movies that I probably all ignored that I probably don't know a single one of from the late 90s about mean people in high school. We'll find out that there's a whole click here that at the top of this, the ultras, the ultra pretty, ultra thin, ultra populars are the ones really holding Carrie down. The first time I really felt like everyone hated Carrie White, that she was just a pariah to absolutely everyone. Here, I think that it's the popular kids that hate her, and I think it's the popular kids that get punished. I definitely agree with that. And yeah, compared to both the book and the last version, Carrie was hated by all. Here, 
they definitely delineate. They have the stratosphere of people who just are very specifically out to get Carrie and her ilk. They go through this, and it reminded me of that movie Disturbing Behavior, when they start categorizing every student in the school into a social clique in this so cool manner. But in another way, isn't it slightly more realistic, especially for, I guess, a larger school, which is what this feels to me to be? This doesn't feel like small backwoods Maine anymore. This feels like a medium town filmed in L.A., and that not everyone in the school would even know Carrie. And yet we only see the same six kids again and again, all sharing the same class together. I think they're bound by their budget on that one. I think you would like to feel that it is maybe a, a larger Midwestern. I got Midwestern. I have no idea why. Obviously filmed in L.A. I got the sense that this is middle America, that this is not coastal. It's definitely not East Coast. There's no real accents. There's no real landmarks even. I get the sense that this is happening in any town USA. Oh, there are definitely references to Maine, though. If you look at, like, the county, I think they're in Cumberland County, they're putting a little bit of signage up to imply Maine. Yeah, I mean, there's a farming community. I think it must not be too big because, again, a central part of this plot are these kids think that the prank should revolve around getting pig's blood. I'm not sure really urban kids, it would ever occur to them to go to a slaughterhouse. You're probably right because they're bound to King's text, and I think they largely follow it. I have read the novel. I do think that they stick fairly close, but they use many of the same plot points here. I guess maybe this is me. I'll go with you. All right. And you mentioned Freddie Prince Jr. movies. I honestly thought the actor who said that line might have been in one of the Freddie Prince Jr. movies. For a TV movie, They've got a fairly decent cast of people I know here, Not some from TV and some would be in TV shows later that I know, but overall, I'm pretty impressed with the overall casting of this. I mean, you start off with Angela Bettis. I only know her from one other movie. It was what she filmed that got her this role, a little horror film called May. Didn't see it, but I know that it has a following and it gets mentioned from time to time. I wouldn't mind seeing it, but I don't know it. Oh, I hope we get to it someday. It's a quirky thing where she plays an outcast, introverted girl. A creepy kind of girl role. I could see why you'd see that and say she should play Carrie, and somebody actually did. Yeah, you know, I think a big part of Carrie is getting the right look. Again, with the rage, I don't know, it's weird to have this goth 90s chick playing Carrie, especially going off that original film where Sissy Spacek had just such a sickly look. I, I like Angela Bettis' look here. I'm wondering how Chloe Grace Moretz is going to pull it off next week. You know, she's she's a good-looking gal. I, I, I want Carrie to look a little bit off, a little bit creepy. That really sells it, the awkwardness, the outcast. Angela Bettis here has the right look for Carrie. She walks with an instep. I notice that she does something when she's going home, almost like she's deformed or something, or she never learned how to walk properly. I don't know, but they try to really sell you with the way she carries herself that she is feeble. I don't know. I think she looks pretty cute. I don't get that she's Sissy Spacek. Oh, I disagree. I, If anything, she's so weird looking that I wondered if they could pretty her up for the prom the way they did Sissy Spacek. I was really thinking in these early scenes that they found somebody so strange that is she too strange? Is she going to be able to come back from the edge? Never mind the fact, is she going to be able to carry a TV series? Don't you think they should have cast a fat girl? 
I mean, later we'll have the Tormentor say, pig's blood for a pig, and her story is related to pig malian. They keep wanting to work in this pig theme. Pig implies overweight. I think that that would have been a way to go here, and that would have made it easier to understand why she was considered so ugly. I don't get it. When we get those insert shots in the shower, I don't get that she has an ugly body. I get that she feels ugly. I don't see it. Yeah, in King's original novel, she was overweight. Not morbidly so, but yes, that was the pig's blood for a pig was in the original novel said by Billy because she was bleeding like a stuck pig and she was overweight. Yeah, and it really sticks out when I was watching this because, no, this actress is not even close to big. She's very petite, so it's weird they want to keep in those lines, keep the pig theme. Well, I know it's risky throwing fat people in a movie or TV. They don't think they'll get the ratings, but go for it, if that's the story. I think you could do it today. I think... We do have Mike and Molly. That's gone on multiple seasons somehow. I was going to say, Melissa McCarthy has paved a way, and I think even before that, Roseanne, that you could have overweight women. And Melissa McCarthy was also, before Mike and Molly a very popular character on Gilmore Girls playing a younger fat girl, you could do it. But they've chosen not to for any of these representations of Carrie, and I think probably that's because Sissy Spacek in the role looms so large that if you made a fat girl Carrie, people would say that's not Carrie because it's not what Sissy Spacek looked like. Yeah, again, the interplay between how much do we redo what Brian De Palma did and how much do we try to reinterpret. It doesn't help that the poster for this thing is her in the prom dress covered in blood. I mean, I think you needed a different visual. I think you really, really needed to go as far away from what has been done. It's too iconic to go there. A fat carry certainly is the right step towards having me think of the character in a different way. And I think that's what they should do here. I think it should be a new click system, punishing a new girl for new reasons. And why try to set yourself up for the failure of redoing Sissy SpaceX? Look, it just, it doesn't help. Yet we're going to be having the same conversation next week. (laughs) No doubt about it. Chloe Grace Moretz. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll save it. But one way I really wish they had emulated De Palma is with the videography here. Man, if the last two movies, even The Rage Carry 2, had some good crane shots, had some real cinematic flair to it, they didn't even try here. (laughs) You're not a big fan of CSI lighting where everything is dark? Like, they go to the principal office, lights are out. They're at the cops, lights are out. Like, everything has that, like, just that kind of green, dark glow to it. This is CSI. It's a cop film. But there's also the scenes that are incredibly overlit, like the locker room scene and all of that. I think I like it underlit because when it's underlit, it's not screaming to you that this is video. This is something that will never get a high-def release because it's not going to look any better because this was recorded in 480p. I mean, this looks like it was shot with a camcorder, and I'm not even talking a nice professional-grade one. It looks like an old Rico. Yeah, in 2002, they didn't have the video cameras they do now. Now they could shoot this, and it would look a whole lot better. I'm not just talking about the video image, which is washed out or underlit, as you guys have both pointed out. I'm talking about the style in which everything is handheld. Everything, the camera is inches away from people's face. There's way too many close-ups. I don't get a sense of movement or place, or I don't know whether it's because they don't have good sets and they can't move around them, but I feel 
claustrophobic. I feel like we got the wrong carry, the wrong look. It starts off in a really bad place. I just feel like instantly this is not going to be good. I actually like the shower scene close-ups. I'm surprised they got away with that much nudity on network TV. I'm telling you, I, I haven't watched a whole lot of CSI, maybe an episode or two, but this yelled early 2000s cop drama to me. Just the way it's shot and lit and those close-ups. It, it's maddening. That's why I can never get into those kind of shows. And, of course, it is a cop drama. I mean, it should be pointed out here, one of the major ways that they try to give this a new feel is by inserting this frame story. This is actually happening after the events of Carrie and the Prom. That's all flashback. And that's the way King told the story originally as well. If you read the book, this whole book is told in flashback interspersed with police interviews. There's a lot more sources of data. There's a white commission that is researching it, kind of like JFK, and there's autobiographies written by survivors that are quoted. But the entire original novel is interspersed with these flashback point-of-view stories. So I took that as a throwback to the original book. There is another part to that, though. If you guys found it odd, I mean, normally TV movies are two hours or they're four hours. This one ran three. It was a full primetime block. Yeah, it wasn't two nights. It wasn't a miniseries. It was one chunk that's larger than two hours, which is strange. Yeah, it was supposed to be a miniseries that ran four hours like Langoliers and It. So what happened to that fourth hour? It's on the cutting room floor. Thank mm. the Lord. Yeah. Does okay. anyone remember Jasmine Guy? <laughs> Ooh, yes, she was the most obnoxious character from the Cosby Show spinoff, A Different World. Whitley, sure. Yes. <laughs> Well, she had a major role, oh. apparently an hour long, in this oh, TV movie wow. as a psychic investigator <laughs> who clashes skulls with the detective played by David Keith. At the end of this movie, you see David Keith finally starting to come to terms that Carrie may be psychic. Where did he get that? Where was he coming to terms with that from? His interplay with Jasmine Guy, who'd been telling him this for an entire hour as a Tangina-like psychic investigator. You know what? I had no idea that the original story was told as, like, this investigation. I thought this is how they were framing it because these cop dramas were popular at the time this came out. I think that's an interesting take, the way King did it. Maybe make this like an X-Files. You got this person with this paranormal ability, something weird happens. I could see that. Make it an X-Files, but don't make it the way they did it. You know, okay, make this a cop investigation, but it is so poorly done the way they do this here. I mean, I was rolling on the ground when we first saw that cop when he starts talking about donuts and heroin. Like, that does not pull me in. That tells me, okay, this is a joke. This is, like, that's not a tough guy cop. It has to be intentionally funny. What is he investigating? This is key to me. What I think maybe, God forbid, Jasmine Guy could have helped elucidate this because, all right, he's putting Sue on the stand. Later, he's putting the class president on the stand. He's putting one of the people that went to the pig farm on the stand. Of the 11 survivors, he's getting them all on videotape, trying to get them to explain what the prank was. Does he think that these people burned the school down for doing the prank? Because no matter what they did, Okay, let's say all of them are responsible for dumping pig's blood on Carrie. Does he think that, that somehow the pig's blood got flammable and that burned everything down? Is he trying to pin the arson crime 
on these people because who cares about a stupid prank when 70 kids are dead and a school is burnt to a crisp? I should clarify that 234 kids are dead. Oh. Yeah. It's a huge number. I was paying attention to what the body count was. Yeah. And they say it at the end. Yeah, after trying to count. <laughs> there weren't more than 30 extras in that gym, but whatever. Okay, 230, sure. But at one point, Billy does tell Sue that the prank they're pulling on Carrie is felony assault. And if you look at situations in real life where something goes horribly wrong, if he thinks Carrie started the fire and Carrie's the arsonist, obviously he is looking for Carrie. Carrie is listed as missing, not dead. But in addition... There needs to be some accountability, so if you find the people who pulled the felony assault, at least perhaps some justice could be served. It's never explained, I'm reading into it, based on the line that it's felony assault, but I do believe there would be a police inquest. I mean, when 234 people die, the police are not just going to go, well, shit! Right, no, there would be interviews, there would be testimony taken. He's grilling Sue at the beginning. He thinks she's lying, and she's putting up a front. I mean, she's clearly trying to shut him down. Every time he, he reads a Carrie poem, and she counters with saying she doesn't like the Last Supper <laughs> picture, she'd rather dogs playing poker. I mean, there is a back and forth. It is crazy. <laughs> this dialogue is insane, and I am oftentimes laughing at it. But there is a real combative quality between Sue and this investigator, and even later with the other ones. Everyone is, yeah, on CSI, and they're trying to come up with their alibi, and they're trying to shoot down the idea that they're involved with this. There should not be any reason to suspect Sue. If they have videotape of the kids as they butchered those pigs, there's no reason to think that Sue was in on this. Well, Sue was Chris's best friend before the shower incident, and so... Anything Chris was doing, it's likely to think Sue would have been part of. I wish I'd seen that. You know, I feel like that would be something to establish, that Sue was under the thumb of Chris is not clear. It's kind of called out that Sue made Chris a pet project at one point. But that was a lot. Was it? I don't know. I don't necessarily like the Sue character. Sue clearly does make Carrie a pet project in this one. Unlike the last one, and unlike the book, where Sue just has Tommy take Carrie to prom, you know, in this one, Carrie asks what's going on, and Tommy gives a different explanation, which, as we've said before in Now Playing, in light of any other explanation, we must accept this as the truth. <laughs> and what Tommy says is, Sue finds Carrie interesting, and also, it's not just altruism, it's not just making up for it, Sue herself is being a bitch because she wants to see Chris's face when she finds out Carrie is going to prom and she, Chris, is not. I don't get the fact that this is a fight between Sue and Chris. I wish I did. I think it would help. I didn't understand why Sue was doing what she did. Previously, it felt like she was racked with guilt. She was trying to atone for a crime. Here, when we finally get this very glossed over attack after gym class, there was no thrown tampons. There was really the assault. They weren't teasing. I didn't really see Sue doing anything that she needed to feel bad for. She was there chanting with the others. The big thing is that she was always part of that group that made fun of her, and that's why she wants to in some way atone. But what this movie is going to try to set up, which is brand new to this movie, is that Sue and Carrie are going to become besties in all of this. But by the time credits roll, they're BFFs. And the only way that you can 
get there is by taking it that Carrie is Sue's project, and it is She's All That. Oh, yeah, I definitely think that Carrie was Sue's project, and that's why Chris makes that statement later on in the film that, oh, Sue was once my project. I don't believe her, but I think Chris gets it that Sue has a project, which is Carrie, and so she uses that against Carrie. But, yeah, this does feel very, you know, that late 90s teen film. I wish the drama was as good as she's all that. I don't believe I'm saying that, but I wish it was at that level. I wish I was getting these clicks better and, and the cattiness between the girls. I wish that was all done better in this. I wish Chris was a bigger bitch. I really do. I mean, it is terrible to see all the girls torment Carrie early on, but in the book, in the De Palma film, it's really sent home that they are despicable people deserving of death. Here... Are they really that bad? I mean, there's no. even a scene where Chris goes up and tries to kind of, in a bitchy way, smooth things over with Carrie. Yeah, she's been expelled for school, and yet somehow she shows up in a room, and I didn't believe that. I felt like she was trying to undermine the friendship that Sue was establishing with Carrie. I wasn't believing that Sue had done the same thing to Chris. I didn't really understand why Sue and Chris weren't getting along. I didn't see any of that. I wish I did. It's not there to me. And I think one of this movie's failings is they're adhering too closely to King's words. There's a scene in this movie in a bowling alley, which is where you get the only interplay really at all in this movie between Sue and Chris, where Chris is like, well, what makes you any better than us? And I mean, the dialogue in this movie is in many cases, lifted directly from King's novel. In King's novel, did they have a conversation how they were going to wax their pussies for the prom? <laughs> no, it was a little updated. <laughs> but, like, pig's blood for a pig, that's straight from the novel. And the lines in the bowling alley about what makes you better than us, you were there with us, whatever the exact line is, is also directly from this book. The problem is, again, I like the names that we have here, Chris is being played by Emily DeRaven, who I would like, not love, but like on Lost. Sue is Candace McClure, who I really liked on Battlestar Galactica. But here, I gotta kind of blame maybe the direction they're given or that they were just earlier in their careers because you don't get it. You have to hang on the words. You have to take it on what is said because what is shown is kind of bland. Yeah, I feel like the opportunity to emphasize the girl meanness, it was much clearer in the original movie. I felt like there was a real hysteria when they attacked her. I don't even feel like the girls knew why they were doing it. They just saw difference and they were like, kill it, shame it, hurt it. And the gym teacher was involved in that. I believe that when the gym teacher got out there and slapped Carrie, it was that she had gotten caught up in the frenzy. It plays all differently here in the beginning. We're getting the exact same characters. We're getting, yeah, the exact same lines from King, but the emphasis has entirely changed. And none for the better. I can honestly say not one choice here gives me a better sense or a new dimension to any of these people. Stuart, you're right about the P.E. teacher. They changed her name for some reason to, what, Miss Desjardins? <laughs> She's so French. I don't know. Yeah, they did. <laughs> That's the name from the book. Okay, okay. But you know what? You're right. We had different opinions in De Palma's about the P.E. teacher here. I think I had more of your feelings that you did with that movie where I didn't like her. She felt like just another catty woman in this high school, and she was going out, and she wanted to 
punish those girls and she was mean spirited. I didn't get that vibe like you did with the Palmas here. I get that, that she is mean and wants to get at these girls. I really feel like, okay, we're getting to all this high school drama because those kind of films had been popular around this time. And, and she was just almost like another high school student, not a teacher. I don't think there's one thing that she expresses that isn't anger. That's what's so crazy. Even when she's trying to help Carrie at prom, she's just like, you know, don't worry about it. High school's horrible. I couldn't wait to leave, and my date was arrested for having a toy gun, and it's just a terrible place. All these people will get old and fat at the high school reunion. It's terrible. I'm like, well, good thing you work at a high school, lady. I mean, I was really waiting for that explanation. I would have rather watched that show, you know? I think that would have been a funnier sitcom is a woman that hated her high school experience now being forced to teach Jim there. Uh, that's <laughs> That has comedy potential. But here, yeah, no more empathy for this Jim teacher. She's screaming that the men that control this school, you know, won't allow her to punish these girls even harder. Well, they at least back her when people threaten lawsuit. I mean, and they have a good case. That dad will sue and win <laughs> when they prosecute Mrs. D for what she does to Chris. Another scene taken straight from King's prose. And almost line for line, it's a really silly scene, but you believe in it that that principal has one-upped this hotshot lawyer. He knows his case law. But it's so different. The first scene, we see him, he doesn't even remember Carrie's name, and he seems totally grossed out by the whole idea of periods. He does not seem to want to get involved. He's very standoffish about it all. That he would risk everything for this first-year gym teacher over, yeah, a man who has the power to get his C student daughter into an Ivy League school. I would be afraid of him. I wouldn't worry about the gym teacher at all. And come on, look at what some of the things she said. The fact that she's like, I'm going to plug you up. if you I mean, I think that she threatened to kill them. And she definitely physically abuses them. We even talked in the original how this is inappropriate, of its time, very dated, not how schools would administer punishment. Uh, she has gone above the line, and yeah. I think it might have even been interesting if the principal didn't have her back, that if we saw that, yeah, there was punishment, that, I don't know, change it up. You know, couldn't we have it that Chris kind of wins and, and maybe she gets to hang around? I mean, she comes back to school anyway. Even though she's expelled, I feel like she keeps walking into the gym, <laughs> keeps walking in and out. I'm not sure she gets expelled. She's banned from prom and given a three-day suspension. Yeah, well, I don't know when those three days are. Well, come on, they have the five days before prom, four days before prom countdown, and it feels like they just kind of stopped doing that after a yeah, while. Yeah, they like, kind of they forgot, forgot to use that. those cue cards. <laughs> Maybe one of those cue cards was over a Jasmine Guy scene. <laughs> that might be why. You said that you didn't think any of the additions helped. What about the backstory that De Palma tried to film and just couldn't get the effects right? Of the meteors falling from the sky. There's no way in 1976 those effects would have looked worse than what they did in 2002. <laughs> Let's really nail this home. There is no way, even if they had interns throwing rocks into the frame of the camera, that would look better than these CGI meteors that come down and explode in this ridiculous Michael Bay fashion with folks running in slow-mo away as the house is torpedoed. From space. This is literally the money shot. This is the shot that took all the money. Oh my god. There's no money here. <laughs> then they had no money to begin with. 
because no, it shouldn't be seen, not because it wouldn't have added anything, but it doesn't even feel like it's coming from Carrie. It just feels like all of a sudden we're in Armageddon or something here. <laughs> that's like an entirely different movie. I don't get the sense that Carrie brings those rocks down. It really is just an embarrassing disaster movie aside. I didn't understand why the rocks were on fire. <laughs> I mean, was she pulling them down from space? And exploding. This is like Space Invaders here. Yeah. If In the book, it's just rocks, and you could believe that her power reached out and called rocks from a quarry or a road nearby. Here, it's like she's calling down, yeah, Michael Bay's Armageddon asteroid here. You know, one of the things I liked, which I guess this isn't King's vision, it was De Palma's vision, or because they didn't have the money for the effects, I like that Carrie's powers, they manifested when puberty finally hit her at 17. This scene here, we flash back, she's a young girl, she's watching a neighbor sunbathe and talking about tits. She doesn't know what boobs are, and so she's like asking this neighbor about her boobs. I kind of like this because, you know, it gives us more of that backstory, how crazy her mom really is, and how this repressed sexuality, I just, regardless of these effects, how awful they are, I, I just don't like that they're still tying her powers just to this girl. I, I would have liked some continuity there where it was really about puberty and not just she always had these powers. I wanted to see something that would bring them on, not just she got mad because her mom yelled at her for talking about boobs. Yeah, and I think that, again, it's from King, and I think that what it was is it's something that she was given genetically, but like her breasts, it grew with puberty. But you mentioned the mother, and this is truly, truly where I felt the TV medium hurt this movie. Because in the book, in De Palma's film, Margaret White is the villain of the story, right? You've got Chris and Billy and their pig's blood plan, but it's Margaret who's throwing her daughter, dragging her by her hair, throwing her in a closet and locking her there for days, and in the book, forcing her to shit in a corner. I mean, here, yeah, there's the closet, and it looks... A little bad, but it looks Harry Potter closet bad, you know? <laughs> it's not the worst closet in all of the world to be closed in. The religious iconography is also not very scary. I'm pretty convinced that the Jesus at the foyer has the Rachel haircut. You know, the Jennifer <laughs> Aniston do? Look at that thing. When she walks in, I'm like, it's wearing the Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> no, that Jesus or whatever it was, St. Sebastian. No, it's Jesus in this one. Yeah, but I'm saying in the original, that thing was creepy. That thing creeped you out. You can't use the excuse of budget. They had no vision. No, no, I'm not saying a TV budget. I'm saying that that would be considered inappropriate content to have on TV. Something that was too damning of religion or something that was too progressive. I don't know. It Margaret White is so over the top. I think you could have got away with that. I don't think in 2002, I don't know, the Pope had his finger on the button would be able to censor it. She is, I wrote down, Margaret White is a non-entity in this film. Like, she has no presence. Why is Carrie weird? Well, because I saw De Palma's film, and that's why I know she's weird in this film. I don't really get the sense of it. Yes, there's that nice little closet she goes into, but... There is not that horror of this abusive mother that is holding her daughter back. You, you kind of get that here. It just doesn't sell it, though. And I, I think that's important for this story. Why is Carrie the way she is? Well, it's not her fault. She's doing the best she can, but she's got this horrible albatross around her neck, just bringing her down, never letting her succeed. I'm not going to blame the actress on that because, Arnie, you cited this cast. I didn't know anybody in this cast except... Patricia Clarkson. She's great. I've seen her in many indie films. She's a phenomenal actress. 
I think she made the choice to do the opposite of Piper Laurie. I think she realized she couldn't go bigger, and so she played low-key. You know, it's understated. All of her anger, it never reaches above a stern whisper. There's no yelling. There's no dramatics and theatrics. All of that was scrapped. And, you know, I applaud that for going a different route. But she never gets a moment here until she's trying to kill her daughter. You're right. You do not get the sense that Patricia Clarkson is any real threat to her. That You don't even get the sense that she could stop her from going to prom if she wanted to. I don't think quiet worked, though. I know that it can be hard when you're in the shadow of such a iconic performance to try to do something different. But here, I think is a twofold problem. First, Carrie becomes too powerful too quickly. In the book, it's not until nearly prom that she's able to exert her power with her mother. Here, it's like an hour into this three-hour movie, and she's moving tables and blocking doorways and, like, I rule the roost now. She's rebelling from the get-go. I don't even feel there's a turn later. When she's thrown in the closet, she opens up the secret compartment and starts reading fashion magazines. This girl never once obeys her mother. And I think that's a modernization. I think that it's harder to sell us a character who is so cowed by her mother in this day and age when she'd go to school and by nature be forced to to be exposed to the internet. You know, she looks up telekinesis on the internet in this one instead of the card catalog. And she just would be a little more worldly if she's in a public school. I mean, they make a comment about being homeschooled. And yeah, I think in real life, if there was a Carrie today, that's what she'd be. Well, we'll find out next week. I do love that Margaret White, she's like, the internet? So enraged that her daughter would use such a thing. I, You know what? If they ever remake Mommy Dearest, I don't want to see that role toned down. I, I think there's a good way to play a role sometimes where you don't really vary here. And Margaret White, I want to see her over the top. It's essential. You you need to see rage. You need to see punishment. We understand Carrie, I've always understood Carrie as the product of bullying. And that comes not only from her peers, but right from the get-go, from a mother who could never handle the fact that she even had a child. You know, the very first scene of this movie is of Margaret White, and there's a shot. I really want to know what you guys think about it. The first image is of a bloody knife on the ground as she's in labor. Did she try to kill the child, or did she try to give herself a C-section? What is she doing? There is no one here to assist her as she gives birth to Carrie, and as rocks are presumably falling from heaven here. What is with that night? The only thing I could take from it is that it was in King's book that Margaret White tried to kill the baby right at birth. So I think here, I would not have gotten it from this movie. I only get it because I read the book that, yeah, she's trying to kill the baby and the baby is bringing the rain of stones at birth just instinctively to save its own life. Oh, I didn't even get that. I thought that was like foreshadowing to the bad effects we'll get later on in the film. So even as a baby, Carrie was able to summon fiery, bad CGI'd rock. I don't think that's the way to go. I think we needed to see that that was what stopped her from killing her. I mean, maybe the rock physically knocks it, the knife out of her hand, or maybe just the raining down on the roof makes her scared and she drops it. But expand on this, please. Then again, with effects this bad, do not enhance the fact that we're <laughs> supposed to believe Carrie is making rocks fall, because I never will believe that image. It is single-handedly the worst thing in this film are those effects. Up until this point, 
I always saw Carrie as being about a revenge story. It was like, you don't bully someone because in the end, they may have the power to get back at you. And that there's a secret revenge of the nerds fantasy to her discovering this power and using it against all those that oppress her. And innocent people that maybe didn't oppress her, but she understood the rage. Here, I'm wondering, is she divine? The people here are so horrible, uniformly. I feel like everyone's so terrible. The system, the caste system, is so bad that someone has been sent here to destroy it. Maybe she is satanic, or maybe she is God's chosen one here. I feel like this Carrie is sent to destroy the high school system. It's not about the fact that she's made that way by her environment. It almost seems like a destiny to destroy these people. Great. If you want to do a satire of high school cliques and overthrowing that system, go for it. I think Carrie's a great vehicle to do that. I don't get it in this film, though. I don't either. When you say overthrow cliques, I do go back to think of Heathers and things like that. I don't see it here. I see this as a revenge film. Or... Honestly, at times, yeah, I see it as she's all that with a twist ending. <laughs> Pygmalion, my fair lady. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say there's one thing this movie did a little bit better than the De Palma version. Oh? I'm going to put out a big gambit there. <laughs> yes, I'm are. really curious to hear what you're about to say next. I think Tommy is better. What? Oh, I can't go with you there. I, I like Himbo Tommy in that 76 film, you know. William Cat was so funny. You, I totally related to him. I actually thought that William Cat was a little bit bland, a little bit of a poor actor in that first one. I kind of like this Tommy who actually feels like a person who's kind of going through with this in his own kind of good-natured way. The fact that he's ready to kick some ass when the pig's blood comes down. The fact that He's going to stand up for himself, and he's not going to let the fact that he's dating this outcast hurt his social status. He's so cool that he's going to stand up to all of it, and he, again, I think is the one who's honest with Carrie. He defends Carrie from the beginning. I mean, she's sent away. They're teaching evolution. She's sent to the library. He's there, too. I don't know why. A few bullies are there, and he throws a book at them. Literally, he throws the book at them and bloodies their nose because he's implying that Carrie has a crush on him. I get the sense right from the get-go that he's got a weak spot for her. I think that plays weaker. I like the idea of more that Sue really badgered him into something that he's ashamed of. I think that's more true. I think that if indeed she was this pariah, if she was quote-unquote a plath, I guess that's a reference to Sylvia Plath, but if she's a plath, then he would not be proud to defend dating a plath. Yeah, this seems, again, like cheating with the writing, with the character. It's just, oh, he's the one guy in the jock clique. He's the one guy in any clique that's not going to go along with the peer pressure. He's going to stand up for the little guy and go against those bullies. Like, But why? Why is he so different than everyone else in this school that's just going to go along with the peer pressure? If that's his story, then tell me that story. Through him, show me how Carrie could find success, emulating him, emulating his characteristics, you know, being able to stand up for herself and not feel like she has to go along with peer pressure or, or be this victim anymore. But no, he's just, he is Freddie Prince Jr. He's just, he's the stand-up guy. Even though he's in the clique with the jocks and they're kind of jerks, he's the stand-up one that's going to go and root for everyone. I think he's pushed into a lot of his stand-up nature by his girlfriend. She is the one who makes him take Carrie to prom and all that. But 
I just thought here he felt like a real person in a cast full of flat characters. Whereas in the 76 version, I felt William Cat was one of the more flat characters. So I thought this was a mild improvement. No, I can't go with you on this. But I will say this. He is not the worst recast. The very worst. The one that, I mean, just... I, it's hilarious. The performance is actually a scream. I love that it exists, but it couldn't be more detrimental to the movie. The worst casting of the movie has got to be Billy, right? Billy Nolan went from John Travolta, that sort of goofy stoner, I'll do anything to get some tail guy, into this preening, purse lips, Jack Nicholson-esque psychopath. Hilarious performance. At one point, I think he's Zoolandering to it. I mean, he's... <laughs> He's got the pouty lips, and he's like, uh, oh, man, this cat is crazy. Yeah, he, he's gone from slapping his girlfriend to threatening to murder her now. <laughs> well, again, that's true to King's vision. That's just how it was in 2002. You threatened to kill your bitch. Kids today, they're, they're more sociopathic, uh, maybe. In King's original vision, Billy was this complete sociopath who came to hate everyone around him and wanted to kill for fun i mean that is going there that's great you got three hours here why didn't i get that characterization instead it comes off as a joke to me not knowing that source material it's just out of left field if if you have so much time now you got time to develop characters do it i think the problem is they cast a canadian and can we just believe a murderous canadian (laughs) i did look up this guy he did not work much again and is not working now he didn't work in that film either no no this was terrible 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 like i said the worst one i can go with any of them more than this and i think we needed to believe last time i felt like chris and billy fed into each other that neither one of them alone would have dared to do the prank at prom but because they were in this union that they dared themselves into doing it and here i really believe it all comes from psychopathic billy none of the rest of them would dare to kill the pigs and he just can't wait to do it he's hacking up he's going crazy here i kind of like his facial expressions during the pig killing scene and aided with some 45-degree angle cinematography. I got crazy during that scene, but most of the scenes when he is threatening Chris and when he's trying to be the badass, he's just so miscast. It Truthfully, you could take any other guy in this film and put it in that role and improve that. You could have David Keith as Billy, and I would probably buy it more. <laughs> no, indeed. I, I, Yeah, an older man or something. Yeah, I needed to believe that Chris saw something in him that excited her here. He has no sexual energy at all. He is complete asocial rage, and it, it's not charming in any way. He's not a bad boy. He is a psychopath, and there, there's a distinction here that I can't go along with. And ironically, King himself, even though he prefers his book to De Palma's movie, said the one thing De Palma improved on was the way Travolta played Billy. And here they take away the one thing King wished he'd done in his book. Also, they kind of bring back a couple other roles, if not by name. In the last one, we had the girl with the baseball cap in De Palma's version. Here, we have Tina, played by that actress we saw in Freddy vs. Jason. Remember the stoner who gets raped at the rave? (laughs) No, and I don't want to either. We reviewed that movie twice! (laughs) 
<laughs> and she made no impression, clearly. You're talking about PJ Souls, who was in the Halloween. I remember, yes, this original character. I'm telling you, this cast of newbies, I didn't know who they were, and I don't want to. Oh, this girl has a very distinctive look that I didn't even have to look her up. I immediately knew who she was. And likewise, there's also kind of the good girl who, like, when they get to prom, is the one who's telling Carrie how good her ass looks in a <laughs> slightly gay way. Oh, uh, that sure did not play well. I mean, yes, it would be one thing if Carrie gets there and she finds she's accepted, but someone going, that ass! I mean, that does not have the same impact. She almost started bouncing the dimes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was going to twerk or something. This is just dumb. <laughs> they got a lot of new characters here, too, or at least characters I don't remember from the book. Was there a Norma Watson? The geeky class president, the one that actually gives labels to all the classes and says that she's not a geek. I think that's Lena Dunham, isn't it, from Girls? It looks like her. No, it's Megan Black from Elf. Elf, okay. I know her primarily as a cartoon voiceover actress. Perfect. <laughs> she has an unusual look. I honestly thought that she was brought in to do a monologue with David Keith as a pickup when Jasmine Guy scenes were cut. They're like crap we need to fill this hole let's hire some actress who we can get and get david keith back for a day and so i started scouring to see if we saw her in any of the carrie high school scenes but yeah she's there at prom announcing class president it is weird because for the first what hour hour and a half i think it's just between this cop and sue and now we start getting these other characters getting interrogated. We, yeah, we get the student body president, which just out of nowhere, I'm like, oh, people live through the prom? I, I don't remember <laughs> a whole lot living through the last prom in De Palma's. So what happens here? Something must be different if people survived. I agree. That actually sent the note. There was a couple times where something happened, and I felt like, oh, then we are going to have a different ending. As close to what we saw before as this feels, there are things that are different here. And the fact that there are 11 survivors, yeah, I agree. That was encouraging. But did we think that she threw away the ballots? I mean, we know that Tina was the one that changed the ballots. The problem is the cop is trying to put together things we already know, and in no case is his suspicions right. I don't think that this Norma is got anything in, evil in her mind when she's sitting there chomping down on the donuts, recalling about how prom king and queen were voted on. Everybody is surprisingly blasé, given the fact that 240 <laughs> of their closest friends are dead. <laughs> Giddy! I honestly think David Keith is the only one who understands the gravity of the situation. They're like, ah, the funerals are over. How long should I grieve? I think that was actually Sue's line. Yes. She literally gives shade like that. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm over this. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. And then there's that other new character, the one that's sort of an accomplice, but not really, that was too fat to go to prom, Jackie Talbot. Is that why he wasn't at the prom? I don't know. Yeah, they had him in the last movie, too. He was the one who's like, I want to work on the prom committee. I want to do the ballots. Okay, yeah. yeah. He was there then. He died in the gymnasium with everyone else, whereas here they have him as a survivor who gets to talk to the cop. Yeah, they kind of make him accessory to all of it. He doesn't do anything. He goes to the pig farm, but he won't either slaughter the pig or even slit the dead pig's throat. He just stands there looking horrified, and he doesn't get to go to prom. I mean, yeah, why some people get to live and other people get to die including Carrie herself, but we'll get to that. Mm. First, we have the prom. 
And I had to look at the timer because I'm thinking this really feels like it's actually moving fast for something that once you remove commercials is still over two hours long. What are you talking about? You guys complained about the pace last time. I'm wondering how you're staying awake. I was wondering, too. I think I dozed off a few times. This thing is stretched. I mean, stretched. The movie is actually only two hours and 12 minutes. Take away the commercials. There's 48 minutes of commercials that aren't here, thankfully. Uh, Those might have been more entertaining. And of that two hours and 13 minutes, it's one hour and 10 when she starts going to prom. I'm like, how in the hell are they going to make prom an hour? And I had the opposite reaction. Once she got to prom, I'm like, there's 40 more minutes of this thing? Oh my god, help me. Well, no, I think we had the same reaction, just (laughs) you, you were looking at the movie as half full, I was looking at it as half empty. And full of piss. Yeah, this is horrible by this point. Yeah, I really wonder how they're going to stretch this out. But they do. They have these fake outs like, oh, she gets crowned and has a whole dance before she realizes blood is falling on her. I didn't remember watching this the first time. I honestly wondered what they would do with the blood scene. I saw the DVD cover as I'm putting this in. I know she's covered in blood. But I'm wondering... Do they have to bring the bucket down and throw it on her like she's wearing fur on a red carpet? What are they going to do? (laughs) Uh, In my curiosity was wondering, okay, we know some people have died. We know something's happened. I was wondering if they were going to change it up somehow. Maybe she took revenge a different way because we do get that. We alluded to that whole speech that she gets from the P.E. coach, Mrs. D., you know, hey, they're all going to be fat and 40. I, You know what? I'm like, that is the right message. Like, with a kid like this that's troubled, that is the right message. They're going to be miserable in 20 years, and none of this is going to matter. I'm like, I wanted Carrie to take that message to heart. As grumpy as this teacher was, I'm like, yeah, listen to her. I wish that felt loving, though. She then proceeded to tell Tommy she was going to have him expelled if he didn't slow dance with her. But then I still think all of that feels loving until the exact line after that is, Make it a slow dance. She'll look stupid if it's a fast one. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. I have Stuart's opinion of this teacher this time. She did not care about Carrie. She just hated the other girls. And she used Carrie. Maybe that's what the theme is here. Everyone is using all the other girls. Carrie is just the device by which you can use as a weapon to hurt the other females. It's really catty. I think she's, you know, it's 2002. She's missing her calling. Leave the high school. Go waterboard somebody. I mean, I really think that they could have used her in the FBI or something. Yeah, I couldn't decide if she was trying to be altruistic. This is a character that in King's book, the previous movie, this movie, I never quite get a bead on the motivations for. But at least in the last one, the prom scenes felt a little bit more authentic. And here, yeah. I agree with you, Jacob. I wish that that message was getting through to Carrie, because truthfully, I think we've all lived through it. High school really doesn't fucking matter once you're out of it. It's so hard for a high school student to believe that, but it truthfully is the case. Nothing matters less, and yet here she's trying to convey that message, yet she hated it and works in a high school, as Stuart pointed out. Uh, That was something that bothered me, too. Uh, it's like, did she go back to high school just to tell the students, hey, what you're doing is full of shit? Yes. <laughs> and does Carrie have a bright future, or is this it? I always got the sense that prom was the one moment of grace 
before she would fade back into nothing. Let's face it. If they didn't pull this prank, what would happen to her? Would she go model that ass down the catwalk? I mean, are we really to think that she was going to turn it all around and have a career or something? You're so cynical, Stuart. Well, I'm asking. It's a question. You really felt like there was hope for Carrie? I did. In every incarnation of this, I felt that because of her power, Carrie was growing and blossoming. It's the ugly duckling thing. Even though I still don't think this swan was too pretty on the catwalk here in this version, all three versions are about how she is coming out of her shell. She will not go back into that shell once she realizes she can move shit with her mind. Yeah, but I don't think that that's a career. No, it's not a career, but it's confidence coming out. She is getting confidence, and that helps you. That helps you figure out who you are, which will move you to a career. I mean, she stands up to her mom, and she's like, they're called breasts. All the girls have them. They're very fashionable these days. I'm like, oh, that's kind of, you know, spunky for Carrie. I, I don't know if we ever saw Sissy SpaceX say a, a line like that. You know, it's she's getting confidence, and that's what's going to help her later on in life. She's getting past this bullying, and... No, is she going to go get her doctorate right after high school? Probably not, because she didn't even learn about evolution. But it's a step in the right direction. Unless Professor X is going to give her a scholarship, I do not <laughs> see that she has a bright future in academics, and I really don't know where she could fit in. She doesn't fit in. That hasn't been changed by the fact that people are faking nice and complimenting her ass for one day out of the school year. But if she gets out from under her mother's thumb, if she started going to community college, or hell, everybody's complimenting her seamstress skills, maybe she's the next Donatella Versace. Who knows? The question isn't, will she go to work at Domino's Pizza after high school? The question it was, do we think she will make something of herself? And yes, I believe the personal growth shown in all three mediums we've seen this story so far tell us that she is becoming a strong woman and she would have at the very least a normal life if not an extraordinary one after this prom even if this prom is the highlight of her life the way miss d says it is for so many of the girls there she would still have a better life going forward than she's ever had before were it not for chris and her one bucket of blood but that dream sequence where they do go out and dance it really pissed me off. It really <laughs> pissed me off because it does not service the story. It is a direct manipulation of the audience external to the narrative. The only expectation being screwed with is us going, what? No blood? That and the fact that they have to fill up three hours of time. I mean, how many times did they cut away to commercial? And it's really obvious when they have commercial breaks here. Yeah, this is one of them. They are just trying to add the extra minute. It's a really long scene. I feel like it goes on forever. And since we know that she's going to end up with blood on her, it just feels like, who is this for? It really was making me wonder how the blood was going to come. When they reveal it's a dream sequence and not after the dance, they have to go back up on stage. I'm pissed. I've been pissed a lot earlier. I'll give the movie one compliment, though. I would love to hear it. Yeah, a, a slight one, but it was kind of a nice touch that she shut her eyes so tight that when she opened them, there was no blood on them. I thought that that was a good makeup choice. It showed how she must have shut it all out as she was being doused. And I don't know, it gave her a different look with blood on her than Sissy Spacek had. I thought that worked. But then what didn't work immediately after is how they gave her a tunnel vision. In the De Palma version, she had like fly vision where she saw everything in a kaleidoscope. 
And so now they're like, well, we have to have a special vision effect right now. They didn't replicate the spinning camera moves. <laughs> Why do they got to go there? <laughs> yeah. But then we do get a reminder that telekinesis is really cheap to do on television. Just shake the camera and make them think it's an earthquake. They were doing this back in Star Trek in the 60s. Yeah. Although I will say some of the fire effects worked. It didn't look completely terrible. Uh, there were times where I actually thought there might have been flames on set, but it worked, <laughs> right? This was all CGI, right? No, there were, I'm sure, flames on set. I can tell the real fire from the fake fire. When Carrie's walking away from the school and there's fake. a CGI well, fire mm -hmm. behind her, mm -hmm. yeah, that's all fake. But I'm sure there were some fire bars 10, 20 feet away from the actress that were some forced perspective. The funny thing was, again, I'm, I'm wondering, okay, there's people that survived this. They're wondering where Carrie is. What's the twist here? What are they going to do different? And the sprinklers turn on. I'm like, a modern day fire code is going to save a lot of these students. <laughs> no, that's not where it goes. It ends up killing a lot of them. Already, I've got a real Final Destination <laughs> vibe with this. You know, the water's leaking and then there's the electricity. It just, you know, and there, in those films, I felt they were trying to be intentionally funny. Here, I'm laughing. I don't think that's what they were going for, though. I mean, the way that they're climbing the gym ropes, no one could ever climb those ropes in gym. <laughs> the jock scan, but it won't save them. You know, but Mrs. D, she gets out of there, too, with the class president. Somehow they figure out to go into the ducks. Yeah, the electrocution, I was wondering, because again, I had this meta-knowledge of the last scene, but it was all I remembered. I wondered if only, like, two or three people would die. Because how do you make Carrie a character that we want to see escape if she's going to commit mass murder? When King made that choice with the character, Carrie only had one satisfying end, and that is her own death as a result of all the deaths she's caused. So knowing she's going to live, I was wondering, Tina's boyfriend who laughs only get his arm broken, and maybe it's only Chris and Billy who die, maybe Tommy, because the bucket fell on his head, we don't know if that killed him or not, but it wouldn't be at Carrie's hands. When everybody starts doing the electric slide on the water, I was wondering, can they make this character relatable again? The answer is no, but they're going to try. Right. No, she's killing, and, and this is what we're expecting, but you're right. The idea that we're supposed to want to see her do this every week, to think of this as a series <laughs> in which, at the 40-minute mark, every week, Carrie's going to walk in and go, you know what you need to do? Die! It's a little more drastic than Hulk. I mean, I do feel like, <laughs> on one level, it's an incredible Hulk move. I'm angry, and when I get angry, you won't like me. And we were fine with that with Bill Bixby for five years. I'm not wanting to see that every week. I'm wanting to see it here. I'm wanting to see these people die. It's pretty much exactly as it was before. They even add scenes. There was a scene in the book they throw in here. After she gets out, she goes to a gas station and keeps going. She burns through the whole town. Yeah, you know what? If this is going to be a weekly thing, you go with the Hulk. You go with an anti-hero. Is she going to kill people? Sure, but they're going to be bad people. That's how you would have to set this up. She would just have to kill, you know, Chris and Billy, those bad kids. And I think you'd have to make them a lot more awful than they are here if you want me to go and root for her and tune into her adventures every week. You said Hulk, and that was very much on my mind as I'm watching this. And in the pilot of the Hulk, which you can hear our review of in the archives <laughs> of NowPlayingPodcast.com, at the end of that, the Hulk and David are on the run for murder. But it's very clear it's a murder they didn't commit. Jacob, you said have the Hulk kill bad people. 
The Hulk never kills anyone. He is wanted for a murder he didn't commit. When Mr. McGee starts an office fire, David's lab partner is killed, and since David's on the run, they think David himself is killed. They think the Hulk did two murders. Hulk never kills anyone. Carrie kills 234 people. <laughs> Obviously, you remember a whole lot more about Bill Bixby than I do. Da-da-da-da. I think in 2002, you could go with a Punisher-type character, someone that does kill as long as they're bad people. We'd be willing to accept that. Yeah, the Hulk back in the 70s, he was framed. He was the fugitive, you know. He, it wasn't really him. But I think we could have gone with that in 2002, set up some awful kids and kill him. Okay, I'll go with that. I don't think you could go with... Kids who pull bad pranks deserve death on television. No, and I did say you need to make them a lot worse. I did say that. Okay, okay. They've made Billy bad enough, at least conceptually. He's beyond redemption. I don't even think he's a high school student. I think he's older. You know, he's not part of the click system at all. I think you're right. If she had just killed him and Chris, that's a series. That she is going to lose control and burn anyone in her path is a bigger stretch to root for. And that they're doing it on this budget. I mean, no, less than this budget. This is the expensive pilot. Imagine how cheap it's going to look next week when she gets to Tallahassee. Again, telekinesis is cheap. The CGI fire, more expensive. As long as she never rains fiery rocks from the sky again, they'll be good. <laughs> yeah, don't pull that one out unless it's sweets. Hey, if we go with <laughs> Margaret's religion, baptism cleanses you of your sin, right? We're baptized to cleanse us of original sin. When Margaret baptizes slash tries to kill Carrie in the bathtub, does that absolve her of the 234 <laughs> deaths? And then we're fine with her having a series? I don't think Margaret has the authority to uh, perform a baptism of that cleansing nature. <laughs> because I definitely got a baptism feel off of her attempt to kill Carrie in this one. And the book in the last movie... It's with knives. Here, she's going to drown the bitch. I knew it was going to be different. I knew the house wasn't going to come down because they had had a scene much earlier in which the police detective was going through Carrie's things and it was still standing there. That was one of the mysteries of like, oh, if it's not going to be that direct, then how is this going to go down? I, I think the bathtub was okay, conceptually. I think blowing up her heart kind of looked cool in a way. It's just this movie's too far gone for me to give too many compliments here. I think... There's nothing at stake with this showdown. We didn't hate Margaret White. We don't like Carrie White. So who cares how it goes? Just end it. Yeah, and I don't think it, there's really worth looking into any type of symbolism here, whether this is a bad tip or not. I, I just don't think it's that artful. No. I think Brian Fuller is smart enough to put that stuff in, but whether or not it was intent here, the crushing of the heart like it's a Coke can... Yeah, okay, um, I guess it's a way to take what King did and put it on screen. It looks really bad. But what hasn't in this film? Unlike you, Stuart, I'm not liking Patricia Clarkson, and I'm not liking the way she starts clutching at her chest when she's having this attack of the heart. Did I say I liked her? I said I like the actress. I didn't say I like this character. It's terrible. But then... Sue comes to the house and does CPR. It's Baywatch now. <laughs> Maybe Sue's the real villain here. Maybe she wants to become an assassin. And so I'm going to be friends with Carrie and take her town to town and get her to do my killing for me. Like, I don't get why Sue's going to now show up and try to save her. Like, why? Why? I don't, I just, I've given up at this point. It makes no sense. There's no reason 
why this girl would ever have offered up her date to prom, made her this project. It doesn't make any sense at all, but at this point, it's batshit crazy. She's going to leave home and drive her to Florida from Maine, if this is in fact happening in Maine. A road trip, Thelma and Louise style, in a blonde wig. Hilarious. I was relieved to see that that was just a wig and not a haircut they gave her. I'm right there with you, Jacob. I'm like, what is with that? I'm like, oh. no one's going to tune in. You know, what was that show? Felicity, she got the haircut and it just it ended. No one's going to tune in to watch that haircut every week. <laughs> no one would tune in to any of this. They didn't make the show. They got the message here. Yeah, the ratings were crap, and we never know if they get to Florida. Why Florida, too? I mean, oh, whatever. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Carrie, the 2002 version? Jacob? Let me say the good thing. I like the actress who plays Carrie. I think it's a good look for the Carrie character. Uh, after that, I don't have a lot more compliments for this film. You know, there is some unintentional comedy with how ham-fisted a lot of these lines are, especially by this cop. And I think we said this with a lot of those Marvel TV films. Would this movie get me to tune in, you know, judging it as a TV film, would it get me to tune into a weekly series? No, this wouldn't. I don't want to see this character go on week to week. There's nothing real great about her. She's kind of a mass murderer. And so does this film, does it convince me to root for her? Like it obviously wants to No. Does it have great lighting? Does it have great writing? Does it have, you know, there's nothing real great about this. There's nothing real standout. There's nothing worth my time, you know, especially because it does have that longer running time because it was made for TV. There's nothing here for me. So, no, not recommended. Stuart. I'm hoping this is going to be one of the worst King adaptations of all. When I get through King years and years from now and cite the five worst films in the retrospective, I'm thinking this might be one of them. It is tremendously bad. I mean, just deplorable across the board production, all of this. The irony is we're ready for it now. Brian Fuller right now, if they said today in 2013, hey, you know what we ought to do is bring Carrie to TV. This guy could do it. I saw what he did with Hannibal. I saw how he turned a serial killer into a likable weekly character we wanted to follow. I think he could do the same thing with Carrie. I think they could turn the original novel into a one-hour pilot and give us something great with a higher budget and the Brian Fuller touch. But as is in 2002, maybe he didn't have the clout or the skill or whatever, but this is an embarrassment on his resume. It is the worst thing hopefully he'll ever do that we'll see in the King retrospective. Absolutely the strongest of not recommends. I said when we started this, I'm going to try to judge this when not in the shadow of De Palma's film. And that's so hard. It is so hard. I don't know that I've done a great job because I did a lot of comparisons of roles and I tried to find something this did better. And it's really hard because if I compare these two, this is the lesser in every way. But how is this? If this was the only interpretation of Carrie, how does it stand? And yeah, there's bad line readings and bad production value. It goes with television. I have to take my expectations down a level. I do think that some of these performances are good. Angela Bettis is a fairly good carry. Candace McClure gives us a totally different view of Sue. It's not entirely great, but I kind of like Sue. I kind of like Chris. 
I actually am really happy to see David Keith because when I think of that man, the only thing I really think about is Firestarter and if I think really hard officer and a gentleman. So I think that's why he got this gig is the Firestarter connection. And I like that they stick a little bit closer to King's original text and try to include some of those things, admittedly not with the greatest production values with those flaming stones. But does that mean this movie is a flaming stone itself? It's based on a good story, and it's a fairly faithful adaptation. So I was kind of leaning towards weak, not recommend. Oh, Arnie. Until the end. And then I just go really to the strongest of not recommends. Because you cannot tell me this character can seek salvation. You can't tell me this character... We want to root for her to get to Florida after 234 homicides. <laughs> From the moment she gets in that pink dress and goes to prom, this movie just goes to hell. And so, no, it's a not recommend. I don't think this is going to be in your top five worst, Stuart. I think I could name five right now. We may not get to them for four or five years, but I think... <laughs> Oh, hell, let me just throw out a few names. Children of the Corn 666, Lawnmower Man Graveyard Shift. I mean, their list goes on, Tommy Knockers. So, no. Why are we doing this retrospective, then? <laughs> I think it's worse than this. If this is not a top five worse, I'm worried. Yeah, and should be. I don't know that those are worse. I think I might have more genuine fun. Laughs. It's one thing to be terrible. I, no doubt there are going to be stupider movies. But this wasn't even fun to watch. I didn't even enjoy laughing at it, aside from the occasional bad line of dialogue. This really was no fun at all. It was an endurance test to get through this. Well, I didn't have it as an endurance test. I just didn't have a good time. So, no, not recommend. But I will say, this was an interesting experiment. Because... Three days after this recording is released, I'm going to go see another 21st century vision of Carrie. And now I realize how hard that's going to be and what a bar is set by De Palma's original to overcome and how, God, dare I say it, based on the trailer, I think this version did some things better than I'm seeing in the 2013 version. I mean, here at least the blood was red. It looks like they made the blood black in the upcoming one. I will not speculate any more than the fact that I would say this. When I look at the credentials of the people that made this, I am pleased. Julianne Moore, Chloe Moretz, Kimberly Pierce directing, all of these people have done good work. When I look at the images in that trailer... There's nothing to inspire me. So I'm just going to close my eyes very tightly, as tightly as this Carrie did when they dumped the blood on her. Whatever's coming down on me when I go into the theater, I am just going to try and, and accept the images as they are and hope that there's more to this than the trailers have sold. The trailers have not told me there's any reason to hope for something new. We'll find out how they did it, and is the blood truly black, or is that just done for the Green Band trailer next week? But this Friday, we're going to definitely have some red blood as we continue to discuss Psycho. And TV movies, because Anthony Perkins, for his closeout, Psycho 4 in the beginning, had to do Showtime. And that's Showtime in 1990s. It really wasn't even cool back then. But yes... 
Cycle 4, the beginning, is where we're at in our Psycho retrospective. I hope you guys are following along. I'm having a great time. I've only seen this one once. We're coming back to it. Psycho 4, the beginning, this Friday. You can find out all the details on how to get all six of our Psycho podcasts by heading to nowplayingpodcast.com, clicking the banner at the top of the page, and becoming a gold donor. Your donation helps support this show. We have, as I've stated, years of Stephen King to do. Years. We are really working hard to figure out how to just get the night shift adaptations in during calendar year 2014. And that's a lot of them. Yeah, 22 movies, I think. So... Whoa, whoa, 22? <laughs> in yep. one book. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we're not doing Star Wars or Robocop or Mad Max or The Hobbit, any of those things. It's just all King all the time, just for that one series. Nope, we're doing so many of what you've listed, not Star Wars ever, but so many others. <laughs> and to keep doing this, to keep going for the years we have planned, we need your help. And by help, I do mean your dollars to help pay for the show and help cover our expenses and help us in so many other ways. So $25 or more, you get all of the Psycho Podcasts plus the five Simon Pegg, Nick Frost movies, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, Paul, and Attack the Block. If you can't do $25, then $10 or more, you still get the Simon Pegg, Nick Frost movies. These are only available until Halloween. Then they go in the vault. I've gotten so many emails over the past few weeks. I think because we're doing a donation drive, people are looking at the past ones. They're emailing me. They're going, what if I give you $40? Can I get aliens? No. Once they're in the vault, they're in the vault. And once these go in the vault, we have no plans to re-release these podcasts. So please... If you can, donate by October 31st, and thank you for your support. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you again for joining me. So until next time, it's best if we just go away for a while. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I liked it. I liked it. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews and analysis of the original Stephen King Carey novel. I read about him on the internet. The internet. And come to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another movie review podcast in the Stephen King Movie Retrospective series. This is so far from over. It's not even in the same area code as over. You can also find more reviews in our archive section. Beautiful. <laughs> we have full retrospective reviews of film series including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Friday the 13th, The Avenger Films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. What's your favorite scary movie?
Support from listeners like you help Keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you for your support. I'd like your vote. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. To the devil with false modesty. The devil. (laughs) Now Playing's Carrie Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. But you gotta cut it. No way. Don't tell me no way. You're doing it. Why are you still talking? Just, Just do it. You're doing it. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Maybe you should do an accent. No, don't do an accent. That's dumb. The Carry films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. That's not even in the Bible. It doesn't say that anywhere. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Did any of you ever stop to think that Carrie White has feelings? Do any of you ever stop to think? Now Playing is a Venganza Media Production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. Thank you, Mom. You can go to bed now. And believe something is seriously wrong with her. Her antagonistic, her antagonistic, antagonistic. Yes. <laughs> they don't not know what to believe in God. <laughs> Their antagonistic classmates. Her antagonistic. Oh, shit. I should just copy and paste you the already audio. Did this. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> just go back to the original voice track, really. Carrie succumbs to com. Carrie succumbs. <laughs> Carrie succumbs to Tommy's pestering for the date. But Sue breaks into the White House. That came out weird. (laughs) The White House. The White's house, yes. The house that the Whites live in. Not Obama's pad. (laughs) Investigate Mulcahy? 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 How do you pronounce that? Signage up to imply Maine. Sorry. Oh, you okay? Yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's not me. That's the power cord falling. <laughs> I thought something hit you. I know. No. <laughs> Boom, Mike fell. <laughs> I had a great idea. Ba-ding! <laughs> you say that she's big in indie movies. I don't really know her from that. Primarily, I know her from being on like soap operas and other television stuff. You know her from soap operas? <laughs> what soap operas are you watching? Oh, oh, Clarkson. I'm getting confused with uh, Miss Desjardins. Oh, no, yeah. No. Okay, okay. He knows her from the soap opera. Yeah, I know. We will return to this thought process <laughs> later. Yeah, I'll get that line later. My obligatory Melrose Place reference. Maybe she's the next, what's the name? Isabella Versace? Is that the name? Uh-huh. I don't know. Versace's the name. <laughs> yeah, Versace's and Isabel. I don't know. What's that show where they sew and uh, Project the Runaway? Object? Yeah, there we go. Here, hold on. I'll, let me find one. Uh, maybe she's the next Donatella Versace. 
Pilot of the Hulk, which you can hear our review of in the archives of NowPlayingPodcast.com. With another three or four Hulk TV films. Yeah, I was just saying, don't forget those terrible three consecutive TV movies afterwards. So much Lou Ferrigno. <laughs> you can never have enough of Lou. Too much Lou Ferrigno. Never enough Lou. Except I find the Freddie Prinze Jr. line to be kind of funny. They couldn't do that in 1976. Yeah, they didn't know who Freddie Prince was. They knew no, they knew who Freddie Prince was. They just didn't know who Freddie Prince Jr. was. Always am happy to see Keith David. We kind of ignored him. I think he got the job because we're going to be talking about him when we get to Firestarter. That's the role I actually know. The Keith David. <laughs> David Keith. Now, what's the difference? I mean, <laughs> my God, I can't keep him straight.